Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me today is Mackenzie Cantrell. Mackenzie, how are you doing today? I'm great. Ready to talk about Kentucky politics. Yeah, I'm very happy that you're here. Uh, you know, when you're a guest, you're Representative Cantrell, but today you can be McKenzie. So that's... Uh, I like that. Yeah, that's good. All right. Well, we have plenty to talk about today. We're going to be talking about a couple of uh, Governor Bashir-centric stories. The first is about um, the, the potential merger of two cabinets. One will be about uh, an education program that the governor unveiled last or this week. And the last one will be about COVID, which, uh, you know, we will, we have every week. So I want to make sure I mention also our interview is with Tim Finley, Pastor Tim Finley, who is a candidate for mayor of Louisville. It was a great interview. I did it by myself. He is a great candidate. I think he's got a lot of great things to say. He talked about the issues that we've been talking about with all the candidates, including development and gentrification, as well as public safety. We talked about his experience as a pastor, a lot of different kinds of stuff around that. So definitely check that out. That'll be at uh, the end of the show. So yeah, that's what we have for an interview. Uh, We have Mackenzie here as a guest host this week. So let's get started by talking about Governor Bashir and the Labor and Education and Workforce Cabinet. So Last week, Governor Bashir announced a plan to merge the Labor Cabinet with the Education and Workforce Development Cabinet. And there were a couple of reasons that the governor noted for doing this. First, the unemployment insurance system, which ho- which is housed within the Education and Workforce Development Cabinet, would now be housed within the Labor Cabinet, which is much larger. Mackenzie, you work, I mean, in your day job, uh, you you're, you deal with both of these things. So, so tell us, like, the relative sizes of these cabinets and what it means when I say, like, labor is a bigger cabinet than education and workforce development. Well, the... The, the labor cabinet has traditionally housed, like you said, what I do for a living primarily, and it's been the most important thing to me, which is wage and hour investigations in Kentucky. So if um, if I have someone call me who maybe did a job and wasn't paid for it or was promised a certain wage and wasn't paid it, then they can go online, they can call the labor cabinet, they can uh, seek an investigation and that's been a lot of my dealings before I was a legislator with the labor cabinet was facilitating that arrangement and investigations for uh, for clients who my organization couldn't handle. Um, another huge part of that cabinet is the Department of Workers Claims, so injured workers and uh, Kentucky OSHA. So most people know OSHA, the federal program. Kentucky has a state-run OSHA program. They call it OSHA, like OSHA without the A at the end. And so we have a a fund for uh, workers' compensation. And then if someone notices a hazard in their workplace and they want to report that to Kentucky OSHA, there's investigators, there's the labor cabinet does a lot of trainings about, you know, compliance with, with employers on the various tools that they have um, for investigation. So there's a lot of compliance and and education wing of that cabinet as well. And then, as we know, more recently, unemployment shifted over to the labor cabinet. All those workers who were sort of hired on or maybe on contract to work on some of the backlog of those unemployment insurance appeals or claims or backlog, whatever part of the process the claimant was in, that's been in the cabinet as well. So it does a lot of important things, and we're going to have to see how it goes to be sure that it's a smooth transition for workers in Kentucky. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be an interesting one for sure. One of the other reasons... This is really important to me. Yeah, yes, yes, uh, absolutely. It's it's important to you on lots of levels, I'm sure. So 
Uh, Governor Bashir also noted, uh, he said that the structure as it exists makes it difficult to compete for federal grants. I guess that you have to apply, I don't know, maybe they had to work together or something to do some of that sort of stuff. Yeah, so I'm on the Unemployment Insurance Reform Task Force, and I feel like every time I'm on here now, at least this year, I've been talking about unemployment because when I was a guest on the show earlier this year, I just filed a big unemployment bill. Uh, but it's been a big issue this year. So on that task force, you know, the there was legislation that reopened the Kentucky Career Centers. And so if you look at what a Kentucky Career Center does, the in-person services, they don't just help people with their unemployment claims, which is what we sort of know recently. But they also have job services. They have training and they help people search and search for and find a job. Some of that money was coming from education and workforce development. And then when unemployment got moved to the labor cabinet, you had these two funding streams that were coming from different places. And it was making it a little bit harder. We had already heard that on our task force. Um, I wasn't I didn't know that it was a problem to the extent that those cabinets needed to merge. But I was aware that those were some some tricky overlap going on there. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it seems like it makes sense to me uh, that these two would fit together, at least on some level. Um, under the plan, the current labor secretary, who's uh, Jamie Link, would be the secretary of the merged cabinet, which I don't know what it would be named. Labor, workforce development and uh, education. I don't know. Who knows? I, I did see a few education activists on social media who are kind of skeptical of the move in the immediate aftermath, just because of, you know, anytime you rearrange an education cabinet, uh, that's going to get some people's dander up. You know, education and education activists were very key to the governor's victory in 2019. Upsetting them is not something he wants to do. But I do think that, you know, one of the things that became kind of clear in the immediate aftermath was the, the realization that education policy as it relates to like secondary school and middle school and high school is handled at the Kentucky School Board. Um, and the education part of the education cabinet is, is, is a little different. I mean, we know that um, education policy in Kentucky works at all levels from your school level for our site-based decision-making councils within our schools to the school board level, to the school superintendent level, mm -hmm. uh, to the Kentucky Department of Education. And, you know, even we, we get money from the, the Federal Department of Education as well. Mm -hmm. So there's plenty to go around when you're yeah. talking about K-12 through education in Kentucky. It, there's there's plenty of room for all elected officials to get involved. Yeah, it's, it's, a, pretty, it's, a, it's a pretty layered system as it is already. Um, one of the things that makes this an interesting plan is that it needs to be approved by the legislature. Um, Matt Bevin at one point tried to merge the labor cabinet with the public protection cabinet, but the legislature didn't take up that request. WFBL quoted the governor saying that he is, quote, already moving forward with consolidating the cabinets, unquote. So, you know, the legislature has really tried to stymie nearly all of the governor's plans. And, and the media narrative around the governor and the legislature is that the governor doesn't really communicate that well with the Republican majority and they don't like his plans. Um, so, you know, as a member of the legislature and probably somebody who has some insight here, do you see an issue with the legislature taking this up or maybe them just being like, oh, you want to do it? Tough. We're not going to do it. That's probably the part of this plan that I'm most skeptical about, because we know that there's going to be some sort of ideological bend when you have Republican supermajorities in both chambers. And there might be a will to implement the governor's plan, but at what cost is that going to come with? So, for example, I mentioned a second ago that I'm on the Unemployment Insurance Reform Task Force. We've heard a lot of like heavily biased, you know, one-sided testimony in that committee from, from these groups that, you know, come in from out of state and tell you to shore up your unemployment 
system. You need to basically, you know, cut benefits and cut eligibility. I really hated to see that something that was supposed to come out of, you know, the pandemic that we were supposed to learn all these lessons about unemployment, about how it's such an important social safety net program, how workers and even non-traditional workers have depended on it lately and how we need to make it as strong as we can for whatever comes next, whether it's another recession. And there are lessons that we learned from the recession in 2009 that other states put into place that have uh, made this pandemic and their system a little bit easier to manage. You know, I would like to see us step up and say, we've learned those lessons and we're going to move forward with that. But that's really not the way that the testimony on that committee has been trending. So I I just really don't want my colleagues to say, oh, you know, package something in a way that cuts benefits and harms workers and also say, oh, but we did what the governor wanted. That's not um, that is not a feasible plan. Yeah, I see what you're saying there. So the the issue, the problem would potentially be that the legislature would approve the plan to merge these two cabinets, uh, but in the plan would reduce benefits and and remove eligibility for some workers. Uh, That's a potential fear, potential pitfall that the governor's facing. That's an interesting, interesting wrinkle, something we'll certainly be looking out for in the 2022 session. And, and you mentioned this already. So the unemployment system had a really significant problems in 2020. I don't think anybody can can really avoid saying that. And, and that was really due to the crush of claims that went beyond anything that anyone thought was possible. I mean, the numbers are astronomical. If you put them on a, a chart, it's just like, you know, I, I read this website that has, you know, charts these things in real time. And, you know, this guy, he had like all these bars for like, here's when it was really bad in like 2008 and 2009. And then for 2020, for the unemployment claims and, and for the, you know, the um, first time, um, you know, unemployment claimants, uh, it was off the chart. It literally like he left it off the chart because it would be impossible to see anything else if you didn't include uh, if you included the peak of where it was in 2020. And, you know, the administration put a lot of money into resolving the claims with specialists. And you mentioned that too, highly paid consulting firms, um, millions of dollars that got spent. But really, the problem persisted and in, in getting it to solve like the last people's problems was was just a really big struggle for the administration just because i mean these are really thorny problems a lot of the time and and it, with as much as that went on it was really hard for them to deal with the governor did ask for the legislature to look at bigger picture solutions during the 2021 session. I will say that not much was actually done except for this task force that you mentioned that seems to be centered around let's cut benefits and cut eligibility, which, you know, that would solve the problem of the unemployment system, but would leave the problem of like unemployed people don't have any money without a solution there. So, you know, this is this is going to be tough. The, this move by the governor does seem to be an attempt to deal with like the problem um, of the Unemployment Systems Administration at kind of closer to the root cause of the actual issue that occurred in 2020. So from a political standpoint, do you think that voters uh, who criticized the governor for the issues with the unemployment system will see this as a reason to credit him and say like, okay, he's actually trying to solve this problem. Will it just kind of be water under the bridge? Or is it just bringing up a problem that people weren't really thinking about until until now? I'm not sure how it will be perceived later, because I think the the big thing that has to happen, which is the legislature approving it, the the devil sort of in the details on that and, and how that ends up being implemented will be really crucial to this transition. But there, there's no doubt that the the money that was spent, there's been there's been a lot of money spent to sort of shore up our unemployment, to get the right people in there to help process claims. But 
when you take a system that was used to having about 4,000 people at any given time in the system to about a million people within the system, and then a system that wasn't even built to fathom that number of claims, you're going to see a lot of problems. Every, um, you know, I practice employment law for a living and we had this national consultant come on one of our calls one time and someone asked a question, you know, did any state have, is having issues like Kentucky and the, the, the guy, the expert from, I think it was the national employment law project said, every state screwed this up in their own unique way. And I, and I think that that says a lot that unemployment insurance, there's a federal element to it, but it's, it's largely a statutory scheme and states have a, a lot of discretion on the system that they have that manages these claims, the people that they have in place to manage these claims. And I think the, the really unfortunate and regrettable thing about this is when you have a system that experienced such a rush of claims, these these were people who had never been on unemployment before. And that that the really unfortunate thing was they had a bad experience with government. And that's yeah. and that's really sad. And, and I, I certainly worked as hard as I can with any claim that was, you know, anybody who called me or emailed me. We had processes in place to handle those types of constituent matters. But even our constituent services office that we typically refer matters to was overwhelmed and and you know, we were all doing what we could and and everyone was overwhelmed. So I don't want to see all of that fall on the governor because it was it wasn't the governor. It was the virus and it was pre vaccines that was that made some industries just really, really tough to to work with. Yeah, it was an unknown virus. I mean, that was the thing at the very beginning of it. We we didn't have enough information to really know anything except for that it was killing people right and left. And, you know, it is. I mean, we've talked about it ad nauseum. We probably haven't talked about this part of it for, you know, six to eight months. But it is kind of unfortunate because it's the governor was really trying to do his his very best to, like, include as many people in the, the system as possible to to help as many people as he could. And by opening the, the gates to unemployment as wide as as we did, you know, of course, the proportion of people who had problem probably stayed about the same, but that was just more people that potentially had a problem. It and was- the federal government came in and gave us a lot of the money that was the majority of our benefits. Um, Kentucky employers have, have suffered a little bit because the fund has dropped down and they're the sole, Kentucky employers are the sole entities that fund the unemployment insurance fund. But for the most part, it was federal money that was paid out during benefits during a lot of this time. And a lot of federal money has come in to staff agencies, such as the labor cabinet, who are processing all of these claims. The problem is a lot of these jobs are time limited. So, you know, there's a with the system that we have and how antiquated it is that it's learning that system is its own uh, skill, but it's not a skill that you could transfer anywhere else. So so when you tell someone you're going to have to do the most important thing for Kentuckians right now that they're depending on with their lives, that uh, you're going to have to learn a really antiquated skill that you're not going to be able to transfer anywhere else. And you're only going to be able to be able to do it for a year or two or depending on the virus and federal money. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. That's really hard. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a very tall order. And at the time it was also and 40 other states also need this help. And they all each individually uh, need someone to work on their state. So, yeah, that was a real big lift at the time. Uh, I mean, we need to get this fixed. I do think, you know, 
that this is a step in the right direction, at least, I mean, for this problem, for the unemployment system, you know, getting it housed in a place that can put it a little bit more strategic direction behind it, maybe um, we'll put it um, on a better, better footing. But I guess we'll see. Um, the next thing we have to talk about is everybody counts. So on Tuesday, Governor Bashir traveled to Pleasure Ridge Park High School in Louisville to announce the Everybody Counts program. Details about the program were pretty scarce, but promised to connect all JCPS high school seniors with either scholarship opportunities or a job at a major employer. So the governor said, quote, everybody counts is going to create connections, making sure this next chapter in our students' lives is set before they walk across the graduation stage, unquote. The details about how the program uh, would run... they don't really exist. I don't know. Maybe you have some more information than I do. But the governor did say that seniors would be presented materials about concrete job opportunities at GE Appliances, Ford, UPS, and Kroger, which are, of course, four of the major employers in Louisville, as well as scholarship opportunities for those who want to pursue college through Evolve 502, which is an existing program that already exists. It's a great program that was announced not too long ago. So there were a lot of people at this announcement, including political people. John Yarmouth and Greg Fisher were there, religious leaders like Bruce Williams and Kevin Cosby, community leaders, Sadiqa Reynolds was there, government officials like Marty Polio were there, as well as representatives from all of the businesses I just mentioned. They were really all fawning in their praise and excitement for the program. Pastor Cosby said that he was hippopotamus happy. I, I, you know, The hippo at the Louisville Zoo always seems a little downtrodden, so I don't know what hippopotamus happy means. Maybe the hippo after they eat the marble in the Hungry Hungry Hippo game. That could I be read it. that and I thought about I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. Oh, yeah, yeah. The holidays are coming up. Yeah, yeah. I've got a lot of hippo books that, that Louisa likes to read. Um, so they're all pretty happy in the book. That's true, too. Um, and then also John Yarmouth said the program would be transformational. So all of these folks were all very excited about this program. Um, but there were some skeptics. Olivia Croth, who's the education reporter at the Courier-Journal, she was heavily critical of the program, um, saying that, quote, this program in its current state is literally just giving pamphlets to JCPS students, unquote. So the announcement was billed as a major education announcement, and the the guest list, of course, was really extensive. Uh, And the governor, at the start, he did say that it might be premature to start this program, but, you know, at one point, he used the metaphor of, like, building the plane while we fly it, which is something we used to say uh, when I worked for a startup, um, which was not a good idea. (laughs) And then uh, he did, though, say that was really important. He wanted to make sure that 2021 graduates were part of the program. So that was the reason why they got started as early as they did. So cross-criticisms were couched in the phrase, in its current state. And it's true that, you know, all people involved say that there's plenty more to come in this program. I really think it seems like the, the goal is to get to job guarantees at some of these places, but that was not part of the announcement. So I, I'm interested. You you probably have some more in, information than I do about this, Mackenzie. So um, tell us what you know and then whether you think the governor jumped the gun in this announcement or is the criticism that he received unfair. It, it's interesting that we're having this discussion in tandem with our discussion from before about unemployment, labor cabinet, education workforce development cabinets. This is one of the things that we're hearing about as elected officials more than anything right now is workforce issues. It's been the theme of many of the meetings of committees that that I serve on in Frankfurt. And I actually was not at the announcement in PRP Monday. I was in Frankfurt at our state government committee meeting. But I did talk to two people who were at the announcement to sort of how, how they read the room, how, how they felt, the excitement. And along with workforce issues, of course, workforce issues, those 
complaints have primarily come from employers recently. But when you combine those workforce issues with something that I've never heard sort of couched in these terms until recently, it's usually been, you know, talking about maybe other forms of constituent issues like crime or, or other, you know, other things that we need to engage youth. Youth engagement has become one of the top constituent issues for me recently. And I think when you're combining the needs of our economy and employers right now and that that youth engagement piece, I think we have a huge opportunity on our hands. And with that need right now and the need for in, employers to, uh, to match young people in our community with jobs, career opportunities, training, education, I don't see how, you know, we can really go wrong there. So, and we have groups that are already doing some of some of this work. A, a small group of us legislators met with Evolve 502, uh, which used to be 55,000 degrees. We met with them last week. And according to what I heard from, from this announcement against secondhand is, you know, they have some of the funding to, to put some of this plan into place already. And I think as, uh, as early as kids who are in the eighth grade right now will benefit from this program. So even if maybe some of the details with this new, you know, everyone counts sort of umbrella is is ready to go, there are pieces of this that other groups have been working on forever. I know the Louisville Urban League was very supportive at this announcement. And it, it made me think of, I know Dr. Polio was there. We did a, I've done a tour of, there's a lot of JCPS programs that are training students for the workforce. They're, they're using the resources of our big employers, such as UPS. I did a tour of the academies of Louisville at Fairdale High School. And I think several of our high schools have some sort of academy where you're, you can be trained in a particular job and you're trained, you know, by the job by the, you know, sort of by the employers or, 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 you know, whatever, if you need some sort of training or certification, you're sort of on a path to get that. You know, I don't see how we can really go wrong here because if you're telling, you know, a kid sitting in a classroom right now that, hey, you could have, you could have a job or you could have guaranteed education and skills training when you get out of school, that student might think, you know, hey, I've got options here. And they might make choices differently than, than what they're doing right now. There's, there was a small group of us legislators who met with a group of, well, we, th- we thought we were going to meet with a group of farmers in Menifee County a week or two ago. And we, we go out there. And of course, we talked about agricultural issues for a little while. Then the conversation sort of shifted. And they started talking about this piece. They started talking about their kids and, you know, how... Farming might not be the path for their kids, but they don't want, you know, their their kids to have to drive an hour to the nearest community college or drive an hour or or more to to have a job opportunity in Lexington. And, you know, if they you know, if they don't have anything to do, they could be tempted by all sorts of things that that kids get into when they don't have uh, when they're not staying busy. And we all want this right for our kids. We, We want. Uh, students to be engaged. We want to match those skills with a job. And that's that's what this is. And that's really, I think that's really important. I think that's why you saw so many people excited. 
Yeah, you know, the thing that I've heard uh, the Republicans talk about quite a bit throughout the past year is kind of the workforce uh, participation rate, I think is, you know, as the unemployment rate has kind of started to recover, the workforce participation rate is something that has been um, a topic of conversation uh, among Republicans. And, And I think, you know, they don't not have a point. I think there's something there, which is to say that the workforce participation rate is lower than it has been historically. And there's a lot of reasons for that. First and foremost is probably people don't feel safe going back to work in the middle of a pandemic, which I think is totally fair. But I do think beyond that, there are probably other reasons for it. And there are probably people who go through school and don't necessarily feel like that's presenting them with an opportunity to spend the rest of their lives doing something useful. And the more that we can do, I think, to you know help people both who want to go to college and also especially for people who don't because they really get overlooked um, in, in the school system uh, often uh, You know, when we talk about college and career ready. Anything that we can do to connect these people to the workforce is going to help that problem. So I think that you know the more that we can do there is is worthwhile. I think probably uh, they did they did this a little early. Probably I don't know in, in terms of like a large uh, a large meeting a large group like this like uh, with what they had to offer. But I do think if it does hold up to the promises that they have, um, it is something that will be really worthwhile, something that they will be able to take away from that will probably uh, start to deal with a lot of the problems in workforce development that you, that you just laid out for us. So we'll see. You know, when you think about this announcement, it was, it sounds really big, right? You take, you take all the students who are graduating at, at any given year in a, in a JCPS school and you think, Oh my gosh, are we going to have to give, you know, all these people a job or some sort of free education or something like that. And I really don't think that's what this was thinking about myself when I entered college, you know, I chose my own path and it, and, and some, and a lot of students are going to choose their own path outside of this program. And so that just leaves, you know, we, we can't, we haven't quantified it. I don't think anyone's quantified what the number will be, but group of students out there who need a program like this, who are going to have the chance to, to take advantage of it. And that's the most important thing is, is giving, students that option you know we we can try this and maybe it won't work but the fact that we've had all of our major employers in louisville step up and say we will hire these students i think says a lot about our school system and a lot about uh that that we want to keep our 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 students and and workforce in louisville learning and working going forward yeah absolutely a huge huge issue with uh, people leaving town um that's of course been a long time uh incoming um so yeah i I think that this will hopefully um you know bridge a lot of gaps that exist out there all right the last thing we want to talk about before i get to my interview with uh tim thinley is covid as usual so covid cases uh do continue to rise in kentucky which is bad the rise, though, is not right now looking like another big surge, just kind of maybe a bouncing ball. Uh, I think maybe we might have already reached kind of the peak of where we were going, but I don't know. Actually, our, our um, positivity rate has been up a couple days in a row. Um, but the rise in cases does appear to be leveling out, um, but appearances can be deceiving, so we'll see. Most of Kentucky's counties are now in the red zone, which is, of course, 25 cases per 100,000 population. Only 35 counties are in that orange zone, which is 10 to 25 cases per 100,000. And there were only five yellow zone counties, which is 1 to 10 cases. Louisville Jefferson County is now back in the red zone, both in the state's map and in the city's own data. The city saw 1,400 cases last week, which is about the same as the week prior. 
And according to the CDC data that I've been using, Fayette County continues to be in a pretty flat plateau. Fayette County is one of the last remaining orange counties and leads the state in vaccinations. They hit 70% this week, so good for Fayette County. Kentucky's deaths continue to rise, which is pretty commensurate with the increase in cases, but deaths in Louisville do continue to drop. Despite being in the red zone, more cases than than, uh, weeks prior, and that's been kind of sustained for the past few weeks, there were only two deaths in Louisville last week, which is the fewest we've seen since July. So, you know, if we can see a divorce in the death rate due to cases, uh, the red zone won't matter nearly as much. Um, and then that comes with a high vaccination rate. Jefferson County is now in third place after Fayette and Woodford County. Vaccinations are on the upswing with a 14-day vaccination rate nearing, nearing 6,000 daily new vaccinations. And that's the highest that we've seen since September. Uh, this is probably mostly due to children getting vaccinated. And the state's data only kind of splits out the demographics of vaccinations once a week and at his weekly press conference. But the governor did say that some of the oldest demographics who have you know, been able to get vaccines since the beginning of the year have increased their vaccination percentages by a few points recently. So, you know, maybe that's kids telling their parents they want to get vaccinated and their parents are like, well, maybe I'll do that too. I know JCPS did an event like that where basically anybody was able to get vaccinated, you know, bring your kids to get their first vaccines. And if you want one too, you can have it there as well. So, so that's good. Hopefully that that's occurring um, uh, that across the, the state, not just in Louisville. Kentucky is again closing in on a 60% vaccination rate statewide. It's now increasing about 1% a week. And I think we're at 58.7. So we might hit that next week. So hopefully. Hospitalizations also continue to rise last week, but like cases, they don't appear to be like breaking out and entering a big surge. The rise has been slight so far. We're at 830 hospitalizations now. That's up from a recent low of 765. So COVID really is in a very precarious place right now. If this is a plateau, it's a pretty high plateau or a much higher than we were in the summer. Um, and, and we really need to see cases decline significantly more before we can go back to like no masks anywhere and, and, you know, just like the back to normal thing that everybody wants to get to. Boosters are now available for everybody. So if you haven't got yours, uh, go do that. Uh, Mackenzie, what is a way that COVID has impacted your week or you know, I guess has, will impact your holidays with Thanksgiving coming up tomorrow? Well, my, my brother and sister-in-law are doctors. So either one or both of them is working tomorrow. So for the first time ever, my family is having Thanksgiving on a Saturday to accommodate the doctor siblings. Um, And I don't know if they're working or not working because of COVID, but it will certainly be a big conversation at the the Thanksgiving table about the type of cases that they see and, and, and sort of just the general, how is COVID right now in their hospital? Yeah. We had uh, our doctor Thanksgiving uh, yesterday with with Kelsey's family. Her sister and her sister's husband are doctors. And so we had our first turkey of of Thanksgiving in Nashville yesterday. So um, there you go. Yeah, uh, we you know, it it is kind of wild, you know, out there right now be careful but you know one of the things that we are seeing is a really significant divergence if you've had that booster you're really well protected the cases among people with boosters is is basically nothing right now we did see a pretty significant wane in and immunity with people who had their shots for a long time but with those boosters you're really well protected so make sure you do that um i really hope you got it a couple weeks ago before you go travel for thanksgiving so yes i've had mine and i remember last year being so nervous because i tested a day or two before Thanksgiving. I was worried about driving down there and not getting the results back in time. 
So at least uh, we don't have to worry about the testing and you can yeah. sort of rely on every, everyone at the table being vaccinated. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, or if you need to test, um, Louisville has this program where you can order at home tests. And mm-hmm. I, I've been telling everyone about this because um, they, you know, they come right after you order them and, and I live by myself and they send me eight tests. So anytime I've had an exposure the past few weeks, I just do the test at home and it's, Uh, It's made my schedule and my life a lot easier because I am out in public a lot and I have had a couple close calls. Yeah. Well, that's good to know because we did. I didn't know that. So I'm going to do that because, you know, with a baby, it is kind of tough out there because, you know, she can't get vaccinated. I still have somebody that's under five and not not eligible yet. So um, we, you know, we've whenever we've had exposures, we had to, you know, scramble and find a way to do that. So it's good to know that the city is taking care of us in that way. Uh, A good experience with government, unlike some of the folks that unfortunately experienced uh, unemployment insurance at the very beginning of the show, like we talked about. So, yeah, there you go. All right. Well, Mackenzie Cantrell, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you being here. This was great. Happy Thanksgiving. Yes. Happy Thanksgiving to you. Uh, Let's get to my interview with Tim Finley. Tim Finley is a Democratic candidate for mayor of Louisville. He is currently the pastor of Kingdom Fellowship Christian Life Center, CEO of the Life Development Corporation, and founder of the Justice and Freedom Coalition. He also serves on several boards and with several groups around Louisville, including being a faith-based liaison for Metro Government's Office of Safe and Healthy Neighborhoods, a West Louisville connector, an executive board member of Centerstone Seven Counties, and a steering committee member for both Evolve 502 and 15,000 Degrees. He also established the Timothy Finley Jr. Legacy Scholarship Fund. So, Pastor Tim Finley, welcome to my old Kentucky podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate the invite. Glad to be on and uh, have a great conversation with you. Yeah, we are very excited to speak with you. So you have spent a lot of your life being involved in efforts trying to improve the community. So, you know, there's lots of stuff that you've done. So tell us why you think the next step is running for mayor. Yeah, well, as a lifelong Louisvillian, um, I've been involved in community building, social justice, um, and just overall betterment of Louisville, the overall betterment of Louisville. Uh, But especially in 2020, after we saw uh, what we saw around the country, uh, the racial reckoning, dealing with COVID-19, seeing how policies have such a tremendous effect on day-to-day living, management, city management has such a tremendous effect on day-to-day living. For me, moving from community building, and I won't say moving from it, but the next logical step for me was to move into a role uh, that has the kind of influence and I would have the ability to make wholesale changes for a city that I love so much. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you would obviously have a ton more ability, a ton more power. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, there's a lot lot more you could do there. Uh, and having the, the solid foundation of, of all the work that you've done would certainly, c- certainly serve you well in that role. Uh, and, you know, what's really cool, what's really cool is not so much the power that you would have, but really the ability to bring people to the table mm-hmm. that would really uh, sort of marshal the kind of change that we want to see. So I think I'm more excited about being able to create diversity, equity, 
um, and those kind of things. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's a different way to use power, I think, than probably yeah. we've seen. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So this is your first run for political office. I think that's correct, mm-hmm. right? That's right? Yes. All right, yes. And, 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 you know, several Louisvillians, as this race has kind of evolved, have, have talked about how this field of mayoral candidates is politically inexperienced. I think really just one person has run for office at all that's running on the Democratic mm-hmm. side. So, so, you know, what do you say to convince voters that are concerned about, you know, your experience that you are, are, are the right candidate for the job? Well, first, I would say that that anyone who recognizes that we have this tremendous field of individuals uh, that that doesn't have the kind of political experience that we've seen in, in times past, I think we ought to pause right there, put our hands together and be thankful. I think it's a great thing. As a matter of fact, I think what we need in Louisville are Louisvillians who have walked in the everyday Louisvillian shoes, who have dealt with what many people in our city, in our state, and in our country are dealing with. So I think it's a great thing uh, that we have a field of individuals that don't have all of this tremendous experience. Now, for me specifically, uh, I won't say that I'm completely inexperienced. Um, Again, I'm a former member or a former um, uh, employee of this administration. I worked in the Office of Safe and Healthy Neighborhoods. Um, I was a part of the uh, transition team for Andy Bashir. Uh, and as a pastor, you are, you are used to dealing with uh, matters of budget and people and issues and things of that nature. Um, but certainly, I think that given sort of my trajectory, my journey in life, uh, and what I really stand for, uh, that sort of moral center that I bring to to the table, I think I would be the best candidate out of all of the tremendous candidates that we have, uh, not to mention uh, having the kind of history of community work uh, being recognized for the, the efforts that I've put in the past. Uh, I think that if people trust me with the job, um, I believe that I will be that candidate that brings Louisville into a new place um, and we and we really go in a different direction. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really glad that you mentioned the uh, the, the pastor thing. And that, that actually brings me to the next question that I kind of had, which is kind of about the management part of, of the mayorship. And, and, you know, all of the pastors I speak to, you know, especially people who don't go to church that often, you know, they're like, wow, you're a pastor. That's I'm not a pastor. But they, when people talk to pastors, it's like, wow. Uh, you know, you got to get up there and speak every week. It's like, that's the easy part, you know, managing the staff of people and the, the congregation and dealing with all of those stuff. Listen, that's, man, out of all <laughs> the interviews that I've done, this is no joke. Out of all the interviews that I've done, you're the first person who has recognized that the speaking part is the easiest <laughs> and the smallest part. That it's yeah. the Monday through Saturday every day. That's, that's the part that people don't see. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, as uh, somebody who's been uh, in church, you know, just about every Sunday of my whole life, it's something I've, I've definitely recognized uh, and, and seen with a lot of, lot of folks. So I, I am curious, though, you know, uh, you, you have that experience, but it's a lot bigger. Um, yes. as, as the mayor, I, I looked it up a couple weeks ago. I think it's 6,500 people that report up to the mayor. Of course, not all yes. of those are direct reports by any stretch of the imagination. But that's a huge staff that the mayor is in charge of. Um, and and not, not only that, you have the Metro Council, who is kind of your, mm-hmm. you know, y- y- the people that enact the laws of the city. You have to maintain a relationship with. And, and they don't report to you. know They have their right. own staffs and they have their own agendas. So ca- kind of talk to us about, you know, how your experience informs this and kind of how you would, uh, you know, perform the management parts uh, of the mayor's job? Well, again, um, as a pastor of a thriving church here in Louisville, um, when it comes to management 
And specifically, when it comes to dealing with people, that's my everyday lived experience. Um, and it's not just uh, leaders. It's not just uh, your directors in, in ministry or your executive team, but you're dealing with everyone all the time. And for me, it just, it comes naturally. It's something that I love. I love to interact with people, but also it teaches you how to be a negotiator, a communicator, and one that is, you know, I think you have to be a listener. You have to be a listener, even when there are disagreements and you've got to be able to communicate in a way that doesn't turn people off per se. I say that to say, for instance, with community, with, with the city council, um, right now, we see it in the news, so it's not anything that is just, you know, it's it's secret. But the mayor, the mayor's office and the city council office, that relationship is very strained. Um, th there's not a lot of communication whatsoever. Um, and I think that from what I have seen, it's very, very difficult when you don't have the kind of personality that is about getting things done, about negotiating, and about listening to people and trying to find common ground. There is no doubt that if you're going to be an effective mayor in Louisville, you have to have a working relationship with city council members. Day one, I'm going to work on that, really even before day one, um, because I'm going to move forward as if uh, this race is won. Uh, but even before day one, I believe in trying to create relationships. Uh, we're going to have times where we disagree. We're going to have times when we don't see eye to eye. But that's a part of, I believe, um, what our city has been missing. Because when that has happened in the past, everyone retreats to their own sides and nothing gets done. Um, when it comes to the management of the tremendous employees, workers of the city of Louisville, Metro Louisville, uh, I believe that who you put in position, who you put in place matters. So the chiefs, when it comes to directors, when it comes to department heads, uh, I'll tell you this, I think also we need to go through and look at what department is doing what and how effective they are. That's another campaign promise, another promise that I'm giving that I, I plan on sticking to. I want to make sure that every single department is living up to what they're, they've been employed to do, what they've been called to do, all those, all those wonderful things. So uh, I think that's something that I'm going to come into this with a wealth of experience in dealing with people and very much looking forward to taking us again, again, to another level with the most diverse administration our city has ever seen. Absolutely. That, and that, that's a great answer. And I, I, I am interested to see how everybody kind of takes on uh, management because it's uh, management uh, on a scale of, of this level is not really anything uh, that any of the folks around it have, have, have done before. So, so it's definitely going to be a big challenge for whoever right. steps into the role. Um, sticking with, you know, your, your ministerial uh, uh, occupation, um, you know, there's a long history of, of ministers going into, the, into politics on the right and the left. Um, mm -hmm. so, so I am interested, you know, um, when, you, when people talk about their faith and, and how it relates to their politics, there's a different answer for just about everybody. So I'm interested, you know, as somebody whose faith is very important to you, talk about how it informs your politics and how it has led you to the place where now you're running for mayor. Well, it's, it's not just influenced my politics. It's really influenced how I see community. It's influenced the way that I frame the, uh, you know, how our city can be better. Uh, and it's not simply our city can be better, you know, with big business. Our city can be better um, with, with things that often appeal to politicians. My moral compass, which is absolutely steeped 
in my faith is one that really, really pushes me to view everything through that particular lens. And I do that unapologetically. You know, I look at the city budget. Um, I look at the budget that the mayor presents as a moral document, that a justice document. Um, and because of my view, because of the way that I am, because of who I am in the community, everything that I do is, is centered around, uh, again, my, my thought, my convictions, my relationship with God, and moving forward, I believe, again, that's what our city needs. Yeah, the the budgets are, are as a moral document. That's a that's a very powerful thing. Um, you know, that is, uh, oh gosh, um, Re- Reverend Barber, I think, said that. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. I, I heard that a long a long time ago. And of course, I, I always appreciate that because I think it's totally true. And I think that that's right. a connection to to faith that that you know maybe wasn't there uh, in the recent past that I love to see uh, mm-hmm. a lot more. So, um, you know, Louisville also has never had a black mayor. Um, so I'm interested to hear you talk about, you know, what would it mean to you to be the first black mayor or black person to be the mayor of Louisville and also what you think it would mean for Louisville to elect its first black mayor? You know, coming again out of 2020, seeing what we 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 all witnessed, what we were involved in uh, around the murder of Breonna Taylor. Again, the fact that we're coming um, prayerfully, we're coming out of this pandemic where it has killed black people at two and a half times the rate as others, uh, seeing the long history of racial issues in Louisville. Uh, I've been doing the last couple of months, uh, I've been reading uh, by George, a book by two books by George Wright, detailing the history of Louisville and all the different challenges and um, issues that we've seen. It would be, for me personally, it would be a dream come true. It would, it would be something that I believe would send a message to the rest of the country. Uh, But more importantly, it would send a message to young children. It would send a message to communities that our city is is moving in the right direction. Um, And to be completely honest, I believe, again, the fact that we've never had a black mayor and it's 20, it'll be 2022. That says a lot. And I believe that now is the time for us not simply because I'm black, but I do believe that that's something that ought to be considered, that we have a moment in time where we can make history, we can, we can move forward as a city together, and we can do, uh, set an example, you know, to the rest of the country that we learned from the last three, four, five years and beyond, you know, recent history. So it would mean the world to me, and I think it would mean major progress to the rest of the country uh, here, right here in Louisville, Kentucky. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and you know, you mentioned uh, the the killings of uh, Breonna Taylor and, and David McEntee here in town, and of course nationally mm-hmm. with with George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and, and uh, countless others, of course. Uh, and you took part of the protest that occurred mm-hmm. in, in 2020, and I read some news coverage that said you were even arrested at, at one point. So, <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. uh, you know that that's something you have uh, on on your record, I guess. Uh, so if you if yes. you had been the mayor in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, you, you were tasked with bringing the city together and you were tasked with, with dealing um, with, with all of the things that were, were fallout from that situation. What would you have done differently? What would you have liked to have seen done differently in, in, in that time? And let me say this um, to answer that question, but I want to start here. And I want to be very, very clear about what I'm about to say. I believe that 2020, the uprising that we saw in Louisville, 
it, I won't say that it was um, avoidable, but things could have went completely different. Had the mayor initially, promptly fired the officers. Now, someone's watching this right now, and they say the collective bargaining agreement with the FOP, and it would have meant they would have came back and sued the city. All those things could have happened, certainly. But there are some things as a leader that you have to send a message to the people who are entrusting you to show leadership. So I would have fired those officers immediately based off of the, the evidence, based off the reports. And there were so many times throughout 2020 into 2021 that LMPD showed such um, lack of situational awareness, decisions that were made that were clearly the wrong thing. Our mayor was clearly being advised to stay middle of the road. And I believe in 2020, had we had a mayor that was willing to show leadership, fire those officers, deal with whatever was coming, but rally the city together that, hey, this may happen, but I want you to know I'm on your side. I'm seeing, I'm feeling what you're feeling. I believe 2020 would have went differently. But because that didn't happen, many of us were there in the streets protesting, demanding justice. And now, even to this day, even to this day, um, you know, we, we just today we we heard, um, thankfully, that justice was served or, you know, however you want to frame that with Ahmaud Arbery. And even today, as I'm thinking about Ahmad Arbery's mom there on those steps, you know, somewhat relieved and still having to deal with the pain of her, her son not being here, immediately I think about Tamika Palmer because I say she should have had that. She should have. And that's something that's going to be a stain in Louisville for a very long time. And every time we hear of one of these cases and every time... Um, someone gets justice or whatever the case may be, we're going to think about what we didn't get here in, in Louisville and in the greater state of Kentucky with our attorney general. No, that's certainly true. And, and I mean, I, that, that is, uh, that is the right answer as far as I'm concerned. I mean, if he, if the, the mayor had just fired those officers, I think a lot of people would have ended up in a lot of different place or in a, in a much better place. So yeah. yeah. Um, uh, let's talk a little bit about the issues that are, that this campaign seems to be, uh, focusing around. And, and the first one that most people is first on their list, I would say across the city to the people I, I speak to, and that's public safety. public safety. Um, Louisvillians are concerned about the rise in the number of homicides across the city. Um, and, and really, that's over the past few years. And, and of mm-hmm. course, there was a huge protest that we've already talked about about LMPD. And a lot of these <laughs> discussions around public safety um, center, I think, kind of the wrong people, the people who aren't really affected by violence and, and don't incorporate the conversations that we should be having with the people who are more impacted by both policing and violence. Um, so, so talk to us a little bit about your vision for uh, public safety in Louisville and what you think you could do as mayor to help improve it. Absolutely. Well, let me say this first. What we're experiencing right now in Louisville, um, and I think really the broader narrative around the country, same thing. But here in Louisville, we are experiencing a consequence of what has not happened. We are experiencing um, the consequence of decisions that have been made over the course of the last several years. As a former employee of the city, 
as one who worked in the Office of Safe and Healthy Neighborhoods, who has been given the task to work in violence prevention until this year, and city council admitted it. I was in the chambers when they admitted it. They have defunded the Office of Safe and Healthy Neighborhood for years. This year, there's a spike. There's the COVID relief funds. And all of a sudden now, they are beginning to pump more money into OCEAN. People need to realize that when it comes to public safety, you know, everybody's asking, what are you going to do? What's your plan? What are you going to do? And I'm sure candidates are sitting at home and they're scribbling out all kinds of plans. And they're, th they're talking about LMPD have to be stronger. And I, and I say, I don't, maybe I'm just not the smartest one in the room. But if you want public safety, then you have to get resources to neighborhoods where there has been divestment, where there has been this push to strip neighborhoods of basic life essentials. What's my plan for public safety? Fund neighborhoods, invest in neighborhoods. Now, what people need to realize is that this is not going to turn things around overnight. It took a decade uh, of them defunding these kinds of programs. So we're not going to turn around and see that fixed in a year. But I believe that's the way we're going to deal with public safety. And I want to be that mayor that says to people, listen, we are not going to be able to put a Band-Aid on a broken bone. There are some things we're going to have to do. Poverty, um, hopelessness, the lack of fresh food, the lack of adequate medical care, toxic and contaminated communities. All of these things contribute to public safety issues in certain areas of the city. But also, we have to realize and understand that from a mayoral standpoint, from an administration standpoint, we've got to put resources where they where it counts. I love the fact that we are the Derby City. I love the, the whole bourbon trail. All that's great. But at some point when, you know, the, the, the week of Derby is over, we've got to put more focus and energy into our neighborhoods. We can't just put everything into being the Derby City and not deal with the major issues that have been present for a very, very, very long time. And I believe as mayor, I want to make sure that people realize and understand that my public safety plan invests resources in marginalized communities, invest in our youth, bring back community centers, set up arts programs, get our kids engaged of all different ethnicities. That's the key for me. Yeah, that's a very good answer, I think. Uh, and, and, you know, I think it kind of goes to something that I really believe, which is that the solution uh, to all of our problems already exists inside of us. We just have to find the right way to unlock it. So, yeah, that's great. Um, you, you've taken part in, in lots of the city's initiatives and endeavors to improve the lives of folks who live in the West End of Louisville. Um, you know, we talked about uh, that at the beginning. And, and, you know, in your introduction, we talked about, you know, West End connectors and uh, ocean, like you just mentioned, 15,000 degrees. And, you know, all of these different kinds of efforts, I, I'm sure some of them work great. Some of them might not work as well. I, and you talked a little bit, I think, when you were answering a different question about evaluation of programs and, and how you would uh, approach this and, and um, look at different things and, and what needs to stay and what needs to go. So tell us a little bit, you know, about programs like these. Um, how would you, you know, how, how would your experience serving on these types of boards inform, you know, your decisions or, or your budgets around what, what needs to stay, what needs to go and, and what is um, what, what truly is driving the city to be a better place? 
Absolutely. I'll tell you this as a pastor of a, again, a thriving church, I found out something 10 plus years ago at the center of great programs are brilliant people. Programs are nothing without people behind those programs, brilliant people, brilliant creatives, scientists, statisticians, uh, people that do this. I believe what we have to do from a city standpoint are bring brilliant minds from all over the city together and then get out of the way. As a person who's worked in this city for a very long time, I have seen over and over where a concept is presented, a program is presented, and then people who have come up with the program, people who are the brilliant minds behind the program are sort of marginalized and the program becomes a watered down version that isn't effective. What I wanna do and, and make sure that people hear, I wanna bring the brilliant creative minds, not just in the room, but give them a powerful seat at the table, collaborate, fund what people are already doing. You just made a great point that so much of what we need, the answer is already here. We just need to get the people that are working every day in the answer, get them to the table and allow them to do what they do. What we, what, what's happening right now in Louisville, and I know this, I'm sure you know this as well, in Louisville, you have a small group of people that pretty much do everything that have no idea about what's actually going on in these neighborhoods. I talk with city council members one-on-one. -on -one. They said that. So I want to be that person that brings people to the table and says, hey, you do this. Now tell me what do I need to do to make sure what you do is replicated and how can I get you resources and do that over and over again. Yeah, uh, I, I agree um, with a lot of the stuff that you said there. And, and I do think that that's a great way to, to in, you know, increase the sustainability of some of these programs is to, to let people who, who it's their baby, it's their dream, um, give them the power to, to make it make it happen. Um, one of the biggest issues that I, I, I hear talked about in this, uh, you know, in this race also is the issue of development and gentrification. Um, and, and this is, you know, there, I don't know if you saw the, the, the newspaper article this week about um, the West End TIF. That's a part of this as well. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but but there's some folks, who, you know, I think who are very concerned about displacement due to development. Uh, that That's a, a very big concern for a lot of people. And then there's others um, who are really concerned that we aren't doing enough development in our downtown to keep up with our peer cities, uh, you know, that we aren't going to be able to attract the jobs and businesses we need to, to continue to grow as a city. Um, you know, how do you balance those two concerns? How do you make sure that um, everybody feels heard uh, and that, you know, you, you um, go forward with with whatever vision that you have for development in the city of Louisville? Well, I'll say this. Um, I'm one of those individuals that are very concerned about displacement, number one. I'm one of the individuals that, as it stands right now, I am not uh, on board with this TIF. Uh, I have not seen anywhere in the country where a TIF has happened and it's benefited individuals in communities, say, like the West End or other again, areas that are sort of typically taken advantage of. Um, I'm one that, unfortunately, there's a culture of, there's a lack of transparency in Louisville, and that has sort of mired the, the uh, TIF sort of rollout. 
I've tried to get on those calls and listen up, but no, I'm not a, I'm not a supporter of it as it stands right now. Um, and I'm also one that understands, you know, going to your, your point about the downtown area, progressive cities have, they have uh, progressive downtown areas. They have areas that are bustling. There's an economic engine there. There's drive, there's tourism. I, I absolutely believe that. But I also know this. Um, I don't take from cities where you have that going on and then a block two or three, you're walking into abject poverty. That's the problem. And I think what happens is that every four years, when it's time for these political races, we say we want change for all this, all these two, three, four years. And then we get into the campaign cycle and we immediately revert back to the same formula. We say we don't want gentrification. We don't want displacement. We need investment in communities. And then the, the elections come and we say, but yeah, but downtown is the most important area. As if that doesn't lead to displacement, gentrification, and marginalized communities. So I believe that, yes, downtown is important, but I'll be very honest, and I may lose votes on this. I am concerned with communities. I am concerned with houselessness. And in my opinion, a city like Louisville, that is the fourth most, as of 2019, I believe, the fourth most segregated city in America, we can have a nice downtown. We need to have a nice downtown. I want to work with developers and, and do all of those wonderful things. But first and foremost, it's community for me. It's people for me. It is, you know, I don't, I don't want to put up four hotels downtown and they be the creme de la creme. And we still have children that are starving in our neighborhoods or we're putting up all of these touristy things. And yet we can't get fresh food in a grocery store in the West End. That is a problem. That is a fundamental issue that this administration um, has not fixed and the next administration must fix. Yeah, those are strong words, but I think they're earned. Uh, I think they're deserved. And I, I mean, there's a lot of very important issues that you bring up there around development and, and gentrification. So, all right. Uh, we talked about issues. We talked about you. We talked about a lot of stuff. So if people want to learn more about you or want to learn how to get involved in your campaign, tell, people, tell the people how they can do that. Absolutely. The website, we've got a lot of information on there. Um, mayor.com. That's F-I-N-D-L-E-Y, the number four, mayor.com. You can get information on the issues. Uh, you can see where I'm going to be. You can volunteer with the uh, campaign. And most importantly, you can give and donate on the website. And we would love to have your donation. So we're excited about the race. And thank you so much for having me. Uh, thank you for your insightful questions. And thank you for getting what a pastor does. That means a lot. You're, you're like my dude in my book now. That point right there just, just made it. All right. Very good. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate you being here. Absolutely. All right, everybody. Thank you for joining us. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at MyOldKYPod and uh, at MyOldKentuckyPodcast. You can find our Facebook, or our show at the podcast app of your choice. Uh, Jasmine usually does the outro. I don't really know. I probably missed something. So, you know, you can look us up wherever you want to or go back and listen to a the last show where Jasmine gave a very good outro. All right, thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week.